0: Welcome to the Lovable Podcast. I'm Kelly Flanagan, clinical psychologist and author of Lovable, embracing what is truest about you so you can truly embrace your life. In this podcast, I'm walking with you each week for one year through Lovable's companion book, the year of listening, loving, and living. This companion book is currently available nowhere else, so I hope you'll join us on this journey, as together we recognize, reveal, and resurrect your truest, worthiest, most lovable self can't shake these lies, they keep running around in my head, but what if I saw me the way that you see me, what if I believed it was true, what if I traded this shame and self-hatred for a chance at believing. Welcome to episode 52 of the Lovable Podcast. Joy and happiness are not the same thing. In fact, they may be opposites, and the difference between them could make all the difference in your life. This week, we're going to talk about how practicing your passions may not add up to happiness, but will almost certainly add up to joy. We're going to talk about how all the grit of being alive can add up to the gift of feeling alive. Before we get into this week's conversation, though, a couple of quick notes. The holidays are upon us, and I'm wondering if there are any loved ones you'd like to love on by giving them a copy of Lovable this season. I just spoke with someone last week who told me her husband is giving a copy of Lovable to each of their teenage and young adult children, along with a note about why each one of them is lovable. Um, And that couldn't have made me happier. So who do you love enough to give them this reminder of their worthiness? Lovable is available in paperback, digital, and audio, and wherever books are sold. Support your local bookseller if you can, and be sure to support your loved ones with this kind of message this holiday season, uh, regardless of whether or not you, you buy the book. And remember, the Comprehensive Lovable Study Experience is available now. Everything that we've been working through in this podcast, all of the written content that goes along with the year of listening, loving, and living, as well as an individual and group study guide for Lovable, it's available for free on my website. You can go there right now to get it at drkellyflanagan.com backslash experience. Again, that's drkellyflanagan.com backslash experience. Uh, if you go there while you're there, you can sign up for my mailing list at the top of the right sidebar. Uh, You'll immediately get a free ebook entitled The Marriage Manifesto, Turning Your World Upside Down, and free sample chapters of Lovable. And then each week you'll just get one email on Wednesday mornings with links to helpful content. Um, I think that's it. Uh, let's get into this week's conversation. Happiness is about comfort. Joy is about bravery. Thanks as always for listening in. Hello Facebook Live! Welcome to week 51 of the Year of Listening, Loving, and Living, which is entitled, How All This Passion, Pain, and Courage Add Up to Joy. In the last few weeks, we've been talking a lot about fear and practicing our passions courageously, and this week we are going to add one final piece to this discussion. That piece is joy. Specifically, we're going to talk about how fear of the future becomes bravery in the present, becomes joy in hindsight. Because happiness is about things going our way, whereas joy is about trusting that we can handle life no matter how things go. Before we get into this week's discussion, though, let's check in. As always, I would love to hear what successes are you having in practicing your passions, or where do you feel stuck? What insights do you have to share with us at this point, or what questions do you have to ask? And even more specifically, last week we talked about how the practicing of our passions will attract naysayers, people who are critical of what we're trying to do. And we can waste a lot of time and energy trying to defend ourselves, which can actually detract from the practicing of our passions. So we talked about ignoring them. What has been your experience with ignoring those who would discourage you instead of encouraging you? And while you're thinking about what you want to share, I'll share with you sort of where my thoughts went in the past week with this idea of ignoring our discouragers. Um, I, I, we actually went to see Wreck-It Ralph 2 with the kids over Thanksgiving, and there's a scene where Ralph is in the internet, and he's creating viral videos, and then he accidentally wanders into the comments room, and he starts to get to see all of the negative comments that are... So he's, his mm-hmm. Videos are doing really well. Millions of people are loving them, and yet there's also thousands of negative comments. And um, and someone comes into the room and says, "Oh, you never you never look at the comments," you know. So it was interesting to see that that thing playing out even in a kids movie. But as I was thinking about all this, what I realized was I notice that the people who are practicing their passions most boldly, um, they actually they listen. They don't go seeking out feedback, right? They don't do a lot of time spending spending time sort of uh, scrolling through the comments on their YouTube video, for instance, um, even though it's very tempting to do that. But what they do do is that when criticism does come their way, they listen to every criticism, um, but they don't filter the criticism through their shame. They filter it through their sense of worthiness. Um, so in other words, from a place of worthiness, if the, if the criticism feels just destructive and shaming, they just discard it. They say, nope, the, it's, not, it's not for me. Um, But if the criticism is constructive and helpful, they are grateful for it and they use it and they incorporate it. Um, So this week, um, sort of in response to to naysayers or imagined naysayers in my own head, I've sort of been asking myself, is it shaming or helpful? If I filtered this through a place of worthiness within me and just decided if it's shaming, I'm not going to take it in. If it's helpful, I am. Um, How can I... uh, How can I begin to relate differently to the feedback that's coming my way? Um, And it turns out, as I do that, most of the criticism I receive is actually pretty helpful. Um, I've been listening to it a lot more. turns out my wife has a lot of helpful criticism. Um, So uh, that's that's sort of where my uh, mind wound up with this exercise, is um, not necessarily just saying, no, I'm not going to listen to the naysayers. Yes, I'm going to listen to those who encourage, but I'm going to try to filter all of them through my sense of worthiness and see where I end up from there. So again, would love to hear from you about how the practicing of your passions is going or anything related to this concept of, of naysayers and encouragers. Michelle writes, as noted a couple of weeks ago, my church published my first blog post on their Facebook page. And I found myself checking way too often for reactions. Oh Lord. And then Michelle goes on to write how, how to do our passions without caring whether anyone likes, applauds or encourages, you know, and Michelle, I think, what you're, I think you wound up in a similar place to me, right? Which is whether it's a criticism, a shaming criticism that is wounding our ego, or whether it's a bunch of hearts and, and thumbs up and, and positive comments that is feeding our ego and, and, and boosting our ego, um, that's not the place from which we want to be relating to feedback. Um, because in that way, both positive comments and negative comments um, begin to take us out of the place from which we create and practice our passions, which is our true self or our souls, and starts to anchor us in our ego or our false self. And, uh, and so even even positive feedback can become a, a, a barrier to continuing to practice our passions as purely as we want to. So, um, so I think that the shift, once again, as it seems to always be in this year of listening, loving, and living, is how do I shift back to receiving both negative and positive feedback from my true self, how do I receive it there and make a decision from there, uh, what to do about it? And um, that's a that's probably an ongoing. I'm seven years of blogging now, right? And I still it's an ongoing discipline of having to do that. Um, and some days I'm more successful at it than others. Some days it's all about defending my ego or feeding my ego, and other days I'm more aware and I'm able to sort of take it in from a place of. Of true self and uh, and those days are better days <laughs> as you could imagine so thanks for that michelle um, i think we i think we need to be reminded that this really is ultimately about living from our true self and receiving feedback from our true self as well Anne writes love that way of filtering critical feedback and discarding any shaming stuff um yeah thanks Anne, thanks Anne, for validating that that's a helpful way to think about it um you know the ego is really it's designed to protect us from shaming criticism so if we are relating to shaming criticism from our ego we will immediately go into protection mode we will start wanting to hide so that we don't receive any more shaming criticism we'll want to um, defend get aggressive in return Um, or we might you know if we we sort of sit on that ego throne we might find ourselves in sort of a place of arrogance of discarding the person as a whole who gives it to us, not just their, and it is very, very difficult to produce anything authentic from a place of arrogance. So, um, so yeah, so we, when that shaming criticism comes at us, um, we do not want to be responding from a place of ego, but from a place of true self. And, uh, and then whatever, then knowing, trusting, embracing, um, our worthiness, we'll be able to say that shame isn't true. That this person is sending at me so I can I can set that aside but this isn't shaming that's helpful and I can take that in and I can I can practice my passion more purely because of it so we yes, ask it's, it's absolutely about are we receiving it from a centered place or are we see, receiving it from a defensive place Deb F writes for myself I have to keep reminding me that many criticisms opinions are coming from that person's perspective it might not actually pertain to me or what I'm doing or sharing yeah, yeah that's that's a fantastic reminder um, it reminds me of the first time I taught a college course like an introductory course I was a graduate student ta and I was teaching the whole course and there's like a hundred 150 kids in the in the hall <laughs> kids I was like two I was like two years older than them uh, students in the hall and uh, at the end of the semester they all gave feedback and I swear on any on any criteria you could have split the feedback into diametrically opposite, you know, um, you went through the material too fast, you went too slow and it was too boring. You should tell more stories. You should tell fewer stories, you know? And I remember that was just like, Oh, everybody's giving feed feedback from their own perspective. Um, and so I can filter that through myself. I don't, I can't try to please everybody because I would, no matter who I try to please, I'll disappoint the other half. Um, so I have to decide which feedback to take in for myself, and I think that's just right on Deb. So thank, thanks for that reminder too, that um, it, the feedback is telling us as much about the person who's giving it as it is about what we're doing, and uh, so we just need to listen to it all and Sift Through It. Brenda writes, I catch myself defending myself from helpful feedback if I'm filtering their comment through my shame. It's my fault things aren't perfect. Anne writes, I do the same thing, Brenda. Get defensive instead of finding the value in the feedback. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this, but um, my wife and I have a rule with my She does a great job of editing all of my work and she's like my first reader on everything. Um, but she's not, <laughs> we've decided she's not allowed to give me feedback while she's in the same room with me because my, my response, the ego response is almost always sort of, it's reactive, it's instinctive, I, it's really hard to inhibit it. So I actually, at this point, expect to have an ego response uh, to criticism of my work, even when it comes from my wife, who I know loves me and whose feedback I trust. Um, and for me, the the task is to to, to um, get through that ego response with as much damage, to the, with as little damage to the relationship as possible, and get as quickly as possible back to a place of true self where I can, can receive that feedback in the way it's intended. So... Um, so yeah, I, I think I want to I want to encourage everyone that this is not about eliminating your defensive response. Um, I'm not sure that we, as we talked about, we ever totally eliminate our ego, um, but it is about being aware of that defensive response and then beginning to make a decision about what to do with it. Um, so thanks for that, Anne. Donna writes, I hear Brenda, my perfectionism can derail me faster than anything. Um, you know, when we talk about those three levels of ego defense, the walls of the castle, the cannons on the castle the more aggressive ways we, we defend ourselves and then the throne i mean the throne is really that's where all of our perfectionism resides right if i can stay in this apparently perfect place um this place where i've arrived and i'm in control and i'm in charge and i've got it all figured out or i'm the king of my castle or the queen of my domain then no one can really question if i'm not good enough um there's no cracks in the armor and uh and so that perfectionism is serving that, that ego function. And, uh, and so a lot of letting go of that perfectionism, about stepping down from that ego throne, um, trying not to resort to more aggressive defenses, and uh, embracing that we are, we're good enough and we're worthy even when we're not perfect. Um, and so is everybody else. And that can be a game changer. So thanks to those who are acknowledging that perfectionism can be a, a quickly defensive place that we go to when we start to receive feedback and criticism about our passions. And Brenda responds, I'm always surprised there's so many of us. <laughs> oh my goodness, yeah. You know, almost every person you meet has an ego throne that they've developed, a, a place of perfectionism in some way in their life that they're using to protect against criticism and, and self doubt. And so um, we've all got them, and um, it's okay to, to acknowledge them and to begin to step down from them. Shelley writes, "This was such a timely practice for me. I got a, my acceptance into grad school, and in a moment of pure joy, I texted some immediate family members on a group text thread. It totally threw me off when one of my when one of them texted back a lot of negativity instead of sharing in my joy with me, like the others had. Normally, I would have tried to resolve their concerns immediately to defend myself, but I just didn't. I knew what to do. I didn't respond." And then when I saw her later over the holidays, she asked about her concerns, but I was able to deal with her having confidence and love. We had a good chat and I realized she really did care. She just doesn't always know how to care in a more loving way. Oh, what grace for yourself, Shelly, for the other person to be able to say like, she's trying to care for me, but there is a lot of ego in her care, right? There's a lot of what feels like attack in her care. Um, and what we talk about is grace is being able to see through the false self into the the lovable true self underneath that, even when the other person isn't acting from it, even when the other person isn't even aware of it themselves. And here you are giving grace um, to someone who um, said some things that, that could have been really hurtful to you, probably were at some level, and you said you saw the heart out of which that effort arose rather than the the unfortunate way in which it was expressed through her ego. That is grace. Um, thank you for sharing that. And Michelle adds, responding to Shelley, I'm very impressed by your restraint and congratulations. Um, and really, Shelley, I think that restraint uh, is the important part of that. So thanks for pointing that out, Michelle. Just to, to not react instinctively with that defensive reaction, but just to create a little bit of space where you can have a wiser response. And Shelley, what you arrived at was that the wisest response was no response at all. Um, and then by the time you met with this, this person, you were prepared to, to respond to them with grace. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Whenever you're feeling that defensive response, that ego response rise up in you, it doesn't mean necessarily that at some point you won't defend yourself. It just means that you don't, you don't, compulsively act on it you slow down and uh, and you take some time to think about whether or not you want to so good so good thank you too donna writes the funny thing is that when i allow myself to be really vulnerable it's the best thing brings back my joy so by definition when we're being vulnerable we are inhabiting our true self and letting it be seen in the world and the joy that the, i think the joy in that is the inhabiting of one's true self to return to the center of oneself, where who we are really exists, and to live from it—that's what vulnerability is. It's why it feels so good. Now, it comes with risks because people can really ding us when we're really living from our true self. We actually have skin in the game, right? Um, but there is joy in that inevitably um, because we are whole again. We are in one place within us again, rather than scattered between our defenses and and our true self. So, um, makes perfect sense to me, and I uh, love that about you—that you have the courage to. to to be vulnerable and and live from your true self. Thanks as always everybody um, for another great discussion. Um, So powerful to hear about how so many of you are out there sort of putting these practices into practice in real life. Um, The self-awareness and the mindfulness that you're bringing to um, the practicing of your passions, the ways that people are responding to those, and then responding more wisely, sometimes as a result. And that's all we can ask of ourselves: is that we maybe we get a little bit better um, at responding from our true self next time. So, I'm really impressed by by the the care that you are giving to yourselves and to your people by doing that. So let's keep let's keep going. This week, um, there's really not a particular context from Lovable to share with you for this week's uh, reading from the companion guide. So we're just going to get right into the reading. It's uh, week 51 of the Year of Listening, Loving, and Living, which is entitled, How All This Pain, I'm sorry, How All This Passion, Pain, and Courage Add Up to Joy. I put it off as long as I could. My kids had each earned a free pass to Six Flags Great America by meeting a reading quota at school, so we promised them a summer trip to the theme park. I am not a huge fan of shelling out crazy amounts of money to fight crowds and wait in long lines under a blazing sun, but a promise is a promise. So finally, on a Friday in late July, we'd run out of excuses and we went to the park. My kids had never ridden a roller coaster. I wasn't sure how brave they'd be. My youngest didn't think she could handle the coaster with the big drop, two loops and four inversions in total, but she rode it and she said it was the most terrifying thing she'd ever done. Our middle guy didn't think he could handle the high-velocity wooden coaster with the teeth-rattling turns and 11 stomach stomach-churning drops, but he rode it and he said it was the most terrifying thing he'd ever done. And our oldest son, a complete adrenaline junkie, didn't know if he could handle the biggest coaster in the park, the Goliath, it's called. It's the world's fastest, tallest, and steepest wooden coaster, boasting a 180-foot drop at a nearly vertical 85-degree angle while flying 72 miles per hour. But he rode it, and he said it was the most terrifying thing he'd ever done. It turns out my kids are brave, because bravery isn't the absence of fear. Bravery is going one step farther than you think you can. It's not being fearless during that step, step. it is simply taking it. In fact, fear is a necessary ingredient for bravery. If you aren't afraid, there's nothing really to be brave about. Of course, in life, most of us naturally settle into patterns that stop us just short of our scary coaster. We ride the rides that thrill us, but don't terrify us. Meanwhile, there's a voice in the back of our head telling us which ride we'd like to get on, the ride that is just out of our comfort zone and just one step into our scary zone. In life, that ride might be a new relationship, or a new job, or a new town, or a new church, or it might be a new way of being in the midst of old relationships and jobs and towns and churches. Whatever that ride is, it will be scary to step onto it, but in doing so, you will find the brave place inside of you, and you will find something else, too. You will find joy. At the end of the day, on the ride home, I asked my kids which was their favorite ride. And to be honest i expected them to name the first coaster of the day the one they all knew they could handle the one they weren't afraid of the one they rode with laughter and squeals of delight i expected them to name the one they didn't have to be brave to step onto i was wrong all three of my kids said their favorite ride was the most terrifying one it turns out the things we fear ahead of time but bravely step into anyway are the things we remember most fondly why it certainly isn't because we enjoy terror It is simply because we did it, because we learned something new about ourselves, because now we know fear won't have the last word, because now we know we have a place inside of us, a brave place we can draw upon to step into the next scary thing. You see, fear about the future becomes bravery in the present, becomes joy in hindsight. Joy is knowing you can be scared and still ride through life. Joy is being terrified and trusting you'll survive it joy is believing in yourself enough to believe you are brave of course there are some kinds of bravery we don't choose there are some kinds of bravery that choose us in the forms of trials and tragedies that no human being would ever voluntarily step into and i don't want to suggest those kinds of tribulations should be celebrated or enjoyed but i do want to suggest adamantly that those things can be redeemed by embracing the fact that you survived it by embracing the brave place inside of you by realizing fear comes and goes but your brave place is here to stay. So that is this week's reading from the companion guide. And I'm actually just realizing as I'm reading that, that it really ties closely into the blog post, my, my brand new blog post that I posted today. Um, and that my, my dear oldest son has never done this. He texted me um, this morning out of nowhere and said, love this one, dad. Um, so it resonated with something in him too. So I think I'm gonna read the, this blog post too, and then we'll get into discussing this concept of bravery and joy. The, the blog post is entitled, The Best Reason to do Scary Things. I used to hide on the floor of the car, and I've talked about this here, this experience. When I was seven and our family crossed the vast Mississippi River on the big bridges around St. Louis, I'd become so terrified that I would huddle on the floor of the car until we had reached the other side. Long bridges over water terrified me. I had recurring nightmares about them as a child. I have no idea where this fear came from. It has been with me for as long as I can remember. I don't have any other fears like it, and I don't need them. This one is stubborn enough. A quarter of a century after I huddled on the floor of an old Buick over the wide Mississippi, I drove my young family from Illinois to Maryland, where my wife's family lived at the time. My bridge fears were mostly forgotten. Suddenly, however, the Chesapeake Bay Bridge was looming ahead of us, arching into the sky like an Evel Knievel stunt for the ordinary motorist, and I had my first panic attack. I drove us across the bridge that day, but it happened again on our way home, and then it happened again and again and again. Every time we traveled to Maryland. Several years after that first panic attack, I was telling my therapist about it, and his reaction was the grace I needed at the time. As a recovering perfectionist, he said, Kelly, maybe you don't need to be the best at everything. Why don't you let your wife drive the bridge? So for the last few years, every time we cross the Bay Bridge, we pull over at the last gas station before the bridge, my wife and I switch seats, and my kids tease me as we cross the bay. Which is fine. After all, at some point every kid needs to learn their old man is human. So the plan had worked perfectly over the years, until last month. Last month, I was scheduled to speak at and participate in a dad's retreat. The retreat was hosted in the Florida Keys, several bridges beyond Miami, and it was a dad's retreat, so my wife was staying home. I'd have no one to switch seats with me at the last gas station before the bridge. I'm sure I was the most terrified traveler at the Alamo rental counter. Why do we face our fears? Why do we cross the chasms that terrify us and drive right right through our anxiety? Because there is something calling to us from the other side of it something more important than our sense of comfort, something more valuable than our sense of security, something more treasured than our tranquility. We move toward our fears and through our anxiety because the destination is worth the dread. After all, courage is not the absence of fear, it is the absence of stagnation. Courage isn't going forward without trepidation, courage is going forward with determination, even when we are terrified. Courage is picking up the phone and calling the therapist because the destination called healing and wholeness is more important to you than all the hard hours it will take to travel there. Courage is giving birth to your first baby because the destination of motherhood is more important to you than the painful path by which you arrive. Courage is having the hard conversation with the one you love because the destination we call companionship is more important to you than the rejection you risk along the way. Courage is showing your art to someone because practicing your passion is the destination you desire and vulnerability is the bridge by which you will get there. My wife recently observed that something has changed in me over the last year. She said I seem freer, happier, bolder. She asked me if I had gotten over all of my fears and anxieties. I considered that for a moment, and then I told her that wasn't it at all. Something else has happened. I've made a habit of doing what scares me. And like any habit, it gets easier and easier to do, even though most of the time the fear is still along for the ride. You can make a habit of doing anything, even scary things. And the best reason for establishing such a habit is this. Most of what we love to do and want to be exists on the other side of our fear, on the other side of the bridge. So last month, I got into my Alamo rental car, and I drove over those bridges. None of them were as terrifying as the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, but even if they were twice as high and long, I would have driven them anyway, because the destination was worth it, and because I'm trying to make a habit out of courage. I hope you will, too. I hope you'll get behind the wheel of your life and start driving through what scares you, because what you love and long for lies just on the other side. I think that I think that blog post sort of expands upon this week's reading from the companion guide in the sense that um, when we begin to make a habit out of courage, when we begin to make a habit out of getting onto the roller coasters we most are most afraid of, um, what we begin to expect is that the fear we feel will lead to a sense, an experience of bravery and will lead to a sense of joy in hindsight that I was brave and I did it and that was an experience that I can now do again if I need to. Um, And so fear starts to get conditioned with I'm brave. They kind of get paired in our souls. I'm afraid, but I'm brave. I'm afraid and I'll feel joy at some point after I bravely do that thing. Um, And when we begin to expect that from our future, um, a sense of, of, of peace begins to come alongside the fear. It's still there, but we know at some point it won't be. Um, and so that's where we're at in this idea of practicing our passions. Our passions are such a great opportunity to say, I'm afraid of doing this. People are, people are, are mean and critical and discouraging. And I don't know if this will work out and I don't know if it matters, but I love doing it and it's scary and I'm going to do it anyways. And oh my goodness, I am brave while I'm doing it. And in hindsight, that leads to a tremendous sense of joy. So curious to hear your thoughts about these ideas and uh, how they apply to the practicing of your passions. Julia writes, just what I needed to hear. Julia, I am really glad to hear that. I suspect that that there are a lot of us out there right now that are afraid of things we wanna do. You know, I wanna do this, it scares me. Um, The way that you learn that you're brave is by doing that thing. And in the practice today, we're actually not gonna talk about what you're going to do that scares you, but we're gonna spend some time just settling into the things you've done that scared you and you did them anyways. So you can begin to get a sense not of I need to become brave, but oh wait, I already have been brave. I've got that in me. I just need to find that place again in order to do this next thing that scares me. Um, so we're going to spend some time with that today. I hope it, hope that too is going to be helpful, Julia. Carrie Lynn writes, vulnerability feels like a free fall. Whew, good, good word. Sometimes I wake up with that sensation gripping me, like I'm free falling. That's how I know I'm living out of my true self. I am completely exposed in the season of my life, and I am embracing the changes. I can't wait for the moment I can look back and say, wow, I could have never imagined that for myself. Beautiful, Carrie Lynn. And again, you two are anticipating today's exercise, because one of the things we're going to talk about is that literally every day when you wake up, you're vulnerable. You have no idea how the day is going to go. If you are even living from a modicum of your true self and putting yourself out there in any way whatsoever, you are living from a place of vulnerability. Um, so you already are brave, and it's important for us to acknowledge that we are, we're already engaged in bravery. And as we acknowledge that, we're gonna to begin, begin to discover some of the joy that can go along with that truth. Carrie Lynn, I think you're sort of an exemplar of that because I know how much you're, you're focused on living from your true self. So you're right, every day you wake up, it's vulnerable, it feels like a free fall, and you're starting to discover that, oh, I can, I can free fall every day and be okay. Um, is there anything more resilient than that the sense of peace that comes from that knowledge? I, I'm not sure. I don't think so. Thanks for that, Carrie Lynn. Brenda writes, I love today's blog as well. Thanks, Brenda. Um, so applicable since something so everyday and common to most, driving, is so scary for me. Well, of course, Brenda, yeah, with everything that you've been through, um, I suspect that's what you're referring to, that driving has become particularly scary. Um, and and yeah, like we we're, we're talking about practicing our passions but we need to remember that like one of the focuses of, uh, of this of this this these months of of living of practicing our passions isn't that we're out there doing something terribly extraordinary it's that we're out there doing the ordinary things we love to do that our true self longs to do and and so practicing bravery isn't about uh you know it's not about playing in the super bowl <laughs> it's about playing a game of catch with your with your kid um, whatever leads us to a place of vulnerability, um, and fear it requires bravery and that can happen in everyday life, especially when hard things have happened to us. And that we're trying to overcome some of the fear of that. So Brenda, um, once again, in the same way that you shared your perfectionism, you are not alone in your sense of vulnerability in ordinary things. And Brenda writes, and I'm not crazy about roller coasters either. Laugh out loud. Um, isn't it, I was just talking with someone about this, Brenda, isn't it interesting that we actually uh, go, we pay money and go out of our way to get scared. Um, we go, like the horror movie industry is huge. People pay to go to movies and pay lots for popcorn in order to be scared. People pay to go on roller coasters. People pay to go on lived adventures. Um, it's almost like in a, in a world where our technology and our affluence has, has inoculated us against most of the dangers of being alive it's almost like there's something in us that knows we still need to practice being afraid, right? That there's something essential about being human. We need that experience. We need to be tested um, and to know that we can survive it. I can't think of a better way to test ourselves and our capacity to survive fear and vulnerability than practicing our passions and doing what we love in the world. Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting that, that we experience it in ordinary things, but we also go out of our way to, to test our, our ability to handle fear. Anne writes, this is true. I've gone skydiving despite my fear of heights, and I loved it. I went whitewater rafting at high water and loved it despite my fear of tipping over. Life has been great on the other side of fear. That's it. I think you're getting at both of those things there, right? You, you, this is inconceivable to me, Anne. I, the high bridges scare me. My wife went skydiving, too. Like My oldest wants to go skydiving. It's inconceivable to me to go that far out of your way to experience that much fear. Um, but but you're, what you're getting at is that um, having done it, right, having accomplished it, having had the experience, it leaves you with a sense of confidence in yourself and the joy that comes with that. Um, thanks for those two great examples. Julia writes, very timely, I am about to start a counseling practice and am feeling all the feels about putting myself out there so publicly, yikes. Oh, Julia, um, you know, I did that three years ago. I hear you. Um, I have a, a friend who's doing that right now, and I'm sort of encouraging him as he's going through that. Um, we therapists didn't get into the game <laughs> um, because we wanted to sort of put ourselves out there publicly. We wanted to sit in a room quietly and talk to someone and help them through their, um, their hurt. And so to start our own practice can be a particular challenge to therapists. And, uh, and so kudos to you. Kudos to you for following that instinct and going after it. And I promise you, I promise you, I've never, literally. And maybe you know people, but I've literally never talked to a therapist who looked back two years later and said, "Oh, I wish I hadn't done it." Um, and you will have that moment, probably in the very near future, where most of the fear is behind you. You're on the other side of it, on the other side of that bridge, and uh, and you're able to pat yourself on the back and say, "I was brave," and this is good. So good for you, Julia. Donna writes, what if I gave a party and nobody came? Practicing passion with passion and vulnerability is just a lifelong challenge. What if nobody came, like in April? I can't matter if there are not hundreds of people cheering me on. What if there is only that one person that might be blessed? You know what Donna is referring to and i think i've mentioned it here before on the podcast is that uh, donna and i are partnering to host a lovable weekend out at her for you ranch in uh, in utah just outside of park city it's going to be the last weekend in april um we're going to be sharing some more information about that publicly uh, as the new year begins um but yeah i think that's i think that's a place of vulnerability that we both find ourselves in as donna the host um, and myself as sort of the the leader of that retreat is "What if nobody comes?" Um, and to trust that whoever does come, um, that it's not about numbers. It just is not about numbers. Um, one of my favorite quotes from the past couple of years was from Henry and who said, uh, "In in the area of spirituality, statistics don't count. One or two people who hear you well may do miracles." Um, something that I've taken in and, and tried to trust over the last couple years. So we're going to put ourselves out there again in April, last weekend in April. And uh, and for those of you who are listening and, and might want to join us, um, we would love to have you do that. Um, you can go to my, uh, actually right now, you can go to my speaking page. Um, at drkellyflanagan.com Dr. and you can reach out to me if you're interested in that retreat and we'll get you the information that you need. Um, but, but again, soon there will be information available to everyone and uh, we'd love to have you join us, um, but even if you don't, we'll trust we're worthy, right Donna? <laughs> All right. Stephanie writes, this is so timely as I prepare to deliver a workshop called Choose Courage tomorrow evening, get out of here. That's, that's awesome. I love the synchronicity. Even though I have learned some tools that help me, which I'll be sharing, it's forums like this that help me in my own courage to do this. Thanks for the inspiration, everyone. You you know, first of all, Stephanie, again, kudos to you for, uh, for putting yourself out there that way, making yourself vulnerable. And there's a particular pressure when you're talking, you know, like a therapist pressure is if, if my job is to help you become healthier, then maybe I need to appear really healthy. Um, if I'm giving a workshop on courage, maybe I need to appear really courageous, um, which oftentimes can we, we assume to mean without fear or anxiety. Um, and I think, it's, I think it's actually really more helpful to, as you lead a workshop on courage, to admit your fears, to admit your sense of vulnerability um, and, and show people that courage doesn't mean you don't feel afraid. Courage means you feel afraid and you do it anyway. Um, and so good for you for, for feeling some of that vulnerability, Stephanie, and doing it anyway. Marie writes, do you have a suggestion on what language can I use with my 11-year-old to encourage dipping his toes into vulnerability for the joy on the other side? Like me, this is a huge challenge for him. That's a great question. I have an 11-year-old myself, Marie, and so I think in a way I received that question as a, you know, like almost for me, like, what would you, what would you say to Quinn? I would not try to approach it intellectually um, with Quinn and try to sort of prove through my argument or words that, you know, if you're brave, you'll eventually be happy or joyful, <laughs> rather. Um, I, would, I would, knowing his story and knowing times where he's been anxious, but he did something anyways, we, I would spend some time reflecting on and remembering all the ways he's already been brave and that led to joy and just name it for him. You know, a lot of what I do when I write, when I get feedback from people, isn't like, oh, you told me something new. It's you put words to something I already knew and just couldn't articulate. And I think that's what we want to do with an 11-year-old, for instance, is just through remembering his own experiences of fear and bravery and joy and hindsight, this help him to articulate that experience in a way that he, they haven't been able to so that they can sort of hold on to it and begin to trust it. So, you know, I'd sit down with Quinn and we talk about Remember when you did that and you were terrified and you didn't think you could do it and you did it anyways, and how did it feel when, that, when you were done with that? right? And how do you feel about being the kind of person who can, can do something like that when they're scared? Um, and so through their own experience begin to, to help them really take in that reality. And so let's go from there to this week's practice, um, because it, really that that is what this week's practice is all about. And uh, and there's a funny example of this for me. Just this Monday, we had our first big, literally a blizzard, a snow day for the kids. Um, and Quinn, again, my middle guy, <laughs> we were like, all right, dude, everybody's going out to play in the snow. You know, it was like nine o'clock and uh, time to get out there. And he said, I don't want to go out in the snow until this afternoon. And uh, he eventually came around, got enthusiastic about it. And I said, hey, dude, I'm so proud of you. you know." Um, and I go, dude, I'm proud of you. And he finished my sentence for me. Uh, for overcoming my fear of getting numb first thing in the morning, he said. Um, and I love that. He named it. Yes. You were afraid of going out and getting cold and uncomfortable first thing in the morning. And you overcame that fear. And look at how much fun you had out in the snow, right? That, that very sequence happened to him. On Monday morning so we're going to have tons of opportunities to to reinforce that for our kids and we want to be able to reinforce that for ourselves so let's talk about that um let's talk about what that looks like to intentionally reinforce it for ourselves with the week 51 practice you have been practicing bravery during this year of listening loving and living but you practiced it long before this year as well you practiced it as a child every time you did something you weren't certain you could do and you've practiced bravery every day of your life How many of us know for sure we can handle the demands any day might throw at us? And yet you do it every day. This week, we are going to focus on that. And in doing so, we are going to transform the hard work of bravery into something easier, lighter. We're going to transform it into joy. Usually, when we anxiously anticipate a life event, once we bravely get through it, we rarely reflect on the fact that we survived it. We just move on and start focusing on the next fearful event, which will require more bravery that we forget to focus on. So this week, instead of looking forward toward the future and anticipating all the moments that will call upon your courage, it's time to focus upon the fear you've already faced. In quiet reflection throughout the week, gradually make a list of every event in your life you can recall every event which you anticipated fearfully. This is gonna take some time. Next to each event, write stepped into if you chose to go through it or stepped away from if you chose to avoid the situation you feared. Finally, Next to each time you wrote Stepped Into, write two additional phrases. I was brave. I am brave. As you go through your week, let those two phrases begin to descend from your head down into your heart. I was brave. I am brave. And when they do, listen to the sound of them landing there. It's the sound of joy. So, you know, I think when... (laughs) You know, I didn't—I I didn't have this practice in mind on Monday, but I think maybe I would have taken Quinn by the shoulders. You know, something as something as simple as just not wanting to go out in the snow and get cold. And he, it, it, you know, he wanted to avoid it, and yet he stepped into it. I think just taking him by the shoulders and saying, "Hey, dude, you're brave. You did it. That's the truth about you. You're brave." And this time it was snow. Next time it might be a presentation at school, um, or eventually it's going to be your first day of college and you're brave and uh and and you'll get through it just the same way that that you got through this fear of the snow so that's that's my encouragement to you this week is to begin to take in the reality that you have been brave and you are brave and let that be transformed into joy julia writes i raft the wild and scenic rogue river with seven of my fellow mamas every mother's day it scares me every year and every year i come back feeling stronger than ever this year was the most difficult since we took three rowboats, so I just rowed along with no paddle. I had no control, and it made me so anxious, but I survived. It's a great example, Julia. You go back every year, um, and you in and, and this year you did it in a more challenging way than ever, um, and discovered that you could survive it. Uh, and not just survive it, but but th- sounds like thrive in it. It's a beautiful example. Thank you for that. Jack writes, And for accepting someone you love into your home, knowing that person is causing evil in other areas of your family life, question mark. I'm so afraid of next time she stays and it can't be fixed, not healthy, and it messes with me. Well, you're getting at, and Jack, I think this is an essential comment, an essential contribution to this conversation that I realize as I'm reading it, the conversation would have been incomplete without it in a very important way. Um which is that fear <laughs> is also given to us for a reason. Um, if you're on the edge of a cliff and you start to slip and you get afraid, uh, that fear has been given to you to keep you safe and healthy and alive. Um, and so we also want to be discerning about when when is fear something that we need to persist through and drive through um, and ride through until we get to the thing we value on the other side of it. And when is the fear something we need to listen to and uh, usually then set boundaries with? Like the fear is saying, you need a boundary here. You need to step back from that edge. You need to step back from that person. Set a healthy boundary. Um, So Jack, I don't want anyone to take away from this the message that you never listen to your fear as if it's not telling you something that needs to be done that is true. Um, But oftentimes, and, and this is the other side of that, you discover that um, well, I'm afraid of having this person in my house but actually I'm even more afraid of setting a boundary on this person and that's the fear I need to move into. I need to listen to the fear that tells me a boundary needs to be set here and I need to move through the fear of actually setting that boundary so I can get to the good thing on the other side which is good self-care, protection and care for my family. Um, so thank you so much for that. I, I, I think I would have looked back on this, this episode and sort of kicked myself if we hadn't addressed that. Thank you. Deb F. writes, easy-peasy exercise for me. My therapist used to do this exercise with me almost weekly, reminding me of all the things I've been through in life. I tend to say, okay, I did that. Next, from her, I learned how to slow down and let these accomplishments sink in. It helps to keep me grounded. Yeah, you know, I'm also borrowing this exercise. It's sort of adapted from a traditional cognitive behavioral therapy exercise in which, you know, you write down all the things you fear will happen in the next week. Then you come back to your counseling session the next week, and you review that list and you say how many of those things came to pass and were they as bad as you thought they'd be because usually what happens when you fear something if it doesn't come to pass you you don't notice that it didn't come to pass you don't notice that the time spent worrying was relatively wasted um and if it does come to pass you don't notice that oh i thought it was going to be way worse than it was um and, and if it does come to pass and you survive it, you certainly don't pay attention to the fact that, oh, I survived it. I'm actually pretty good at handling fearful situations, um, or at least I, I know how to, to get through them. So, so, yeah, this is about bringing a level of awareness to our moments of fear um, and the experiences of fear in the past so that we can actually learn new things about ourselves. Stephanie writes, I love this. As Father Richard Rohr says, make these acts of bravery Velcro moments. Indulge longer by recalling them and sharing them with others. That's right. Too frequently, we just allow these to be Teflon moments. We let them slip and forget about these positive parts of our life. Instead, we ruminate the negative failures on repeat like a bad loop from hell. (laughs) I'm committed to exchanging the negative loop to a positive one and reflect more intentionally for longer on the brave moments in my life. Um, I love that. Make, Make those brave moments in your life, the moments where you were afraid and you entered into the fear and survived it. Make those Velcro moments. By making it a Velcro moment, you'll actually begin to experience some of the joy that comes with the peace of knowing that you actually can handle hard things. So you don't need to constantly be pinging the future for the next hard thing. You can kind of trust that, well, when the next hard thing comes, I'll, I'll figure it out. I'll get through it. I'll survive it. Um, I got people who will help me survive it. Um, and, uh, and so those Velcro moments transform into joy in that way. Good stuff, Stephanie. Thank you. All right, everyone, thanks again for another, uh, just gosh, another encouraging discussion. I think, Jack, of your comment and how if I had been out here doing this on my own, something really important would have been missed. Um, so thankful for all of you and the wisdom that you each bring your own unique wisdom that makes the conversation more complete. Next week is the 52nd week of the 52 weeks in the year of listening, loving, and living. It is entitled Reflecting Upon the Unfolding of Your Truest Self. Until next week, remember, you are lovable, you are brave, you have been brave, and you are brave, and those are pretty good reasons to be joyful. Thanks again for joining us on the Lovable podcast. Remember, this companion book can stand on its own, but it stands a little taller and a little stronger on the shoulders of Lovable. So if you have not picked up a copy of Lovable yet, it is available wherever books are sold, and you can get it in paperback, digital, or audio format. If you'd like to simply download a sample of Lovable, you can go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com that's drkellyflanagan.com in the right sidebar sign up to receive my blog post by email and you will immediately receive a free sample of Lovable and a free copy of my ebook The Marriage Manifesto the music for the Lovable podcast is courtesy of Ellie Holcomb and is entitled Wonderfully Made from her album Red Sea Road until next week friends remember you are lovable